Hey guys, it's Drake and Kyle, and today we're going to be using an older clip. Uh, we 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 recorded an episode with Dr. Ben Chung on uh, the university experience as a as from a lecturer's perspective on things like examinations, evaluations, and and how to how to plan a course. And we thought it was a really cool episode, uh, but it was an older for, older episode. So we have the old format again. This is the last time we're going to be using this format. Uh, thought you guys should know going in. This is what we're going to be doing, and we hope you enjoy it. back to Brain Buzz. I'm your host, Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we're joined by a very, very special guest of ours, uh, Dr. Ben Chung. Thanks for coming out. Thank you. Thank you. Good to good, happy to be here. <laughs> so you put up with uh, some technical difficulties before we started the episode, so I'm really happy that you sat through it. We're only a little bit behind schedule, and we know your time is valuable, so we'll keep the questions smart and uh, whippy or snappy. <laughs> I'm sure whippy. they always are. <laughs> <laughs> whoa, 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 we're psychologists, not journalists, but I appreciate your, your enthusiasm. Uh, so, Ben, why don't you tell us about yourself a little bit, who you are, where you're from, um, what you're doing right now. Just give yourself the little 30-second bio. Sure. So, uh, I am a lecturer in the Department of Psychology, and uh, I teach. So, as a lecturer, essentially, just means that I do nothing but teach, um, and I am generally asked to or expected to teach about seven, eight, seven, eight sections uh, worth of courses a year. Uh, so, so far I've been teaching a mixture of research methods of social psychology and cultural psychology, and I enjoy teaching all of them. Uh, originally, I was from Hong Kong. I came here with my family in the 90s, um, having having some experience with English and but it was still a challenge just coming here and getting adjusted and everything um, especially not knowing the word what the what the word gymnasium meant <laughs> was a particular challenge because I, I had a I had a rough first day of PE here because I didn't know what the word gymnasium was <laughs> but evidently you've found that out now yeah yeah I, I now have a better idea of what a gymnasium is <laughs> And I never go to the gym, but I know what it is. <laughs> well, it's important to kind of identify these things, yeah. I guess, when you're getting started. I guess that's something we never think about, um, you know, like learning some of the details of, of showing up at a, you know, at a school, trying to learn something about where you are without having that background or that knowledge to get you, to get you in the right door, I guess. Literally. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, the, the even, I, I know this is probably going off the topic a little bit oh, but no. I, there are no topics <laughs> <about community. laughs> never uh, but it was it was a very different system the the public education system here is very different from the education system that I was exposed to in Hong Kong where you always meet in the same room and then you travel as a class to your next class or you travel as a class to the next place wherever it is that you're supposed to go mm. whereas here I remember that's usually the case, except when it came to PE. I remember it was right after recess, right after lunch, I don't remember. 
And right before we were let out for recess, I think it was, my teacher said, okay, after this, remember, we're going to have PE class. Everyone meet at the gymnasium. And I thought, oh, my God, what, what, is, the gym- <laughs> what is this word gymnasium? Never heard of this word before. We don't use that word in Hong Kong at all. Um, and so I figured I'll just, you know, I'll just go back to the classroom <laughs> like I do in Hong Kong or like I used to do in Hong Kong and then just go with the rest of the class. Uh, except I went back to a closed door. Uh, a dark room uh, and I didn't know what to do and then the next the classroom next door the teacher very nicely <laughs> said oh you must be the new students I was like <laughs> what, what gave it away yeah. <laughs> uh, and then one of one of her students escorted me down to uh, to the gymnasium Nice. Yeah. Was it by any chance square dancing that day? Uh, it was not square dancing okay. that day. Uh, we did square dancing later in the term. Yeah, uh, but yeah. that was actually, uh, I think, basketball probably or volleyball <laughs> or something. Some some sort of generic sport. I don't know. <laughs> um, I mean, it was kind of tangential, but also kind of leads into what we're talking about today because really we wanted to have you on because you're a great lecturer we all, uh, both TA'd for you is that correct you t- yes yeah. yeah I TA'd for you in in the summer for your research methods and then you've done research methods as well Kyle with, with Ben yeah this fall yeah. and uh the way that you teach is unique I'll say it's unique because it's it's good thanks <laughs> thank <laughs> <Yes>. you <laughs> thank you which I guess is unique these days when it comes to teaching <laughs> yeah um especially and, at really large institutions yes at large institutions mainly and so today the topic obviously because Ben is experienced as a lecturer at post-secondary uh in a post-secondary post-secondary setting uh that's what we're gonna be talking about basically yeah. post-secondary education and and kind of get your take on it uh and what makes it good what makes it bad and I don't know get people that aren't in post-secondary to kind of get an understanding of what actually goes on in lectures or in seminars well and i think um i think all of us but uh, ben you especially were we're sort of privileged in terms of our position and that we can go back and look at education through our undergrad and and we and you especially have the experience of building a course and building lectures and so we see it from a slightly different perspective and so i think that that's actually something that um we'd like our audience to be interested in and, and to think about um, sort of all the things that go into into that and how education is different from at varying levels and, and what that looks like as well. I think, I think the way that I envision this podcast going is basically trying to uh, take it from a perspective of like a high school student not knowing anything about post-secondary school and then being able to kind of paint a picture through the way that you teach and then I guess the standards that are expected <laughs> at a post-secondary level when it comes to teaching and, and what kind of uh, goes on in the background that really people don't get to kind of experience. Um, our, our audience is yet to be determined what our audience actually is. <laughs> um, it could be <laughs> Still looking at the demographic of all ages. We, we don't have anybody filling out uh, demographic forms whenever they're yeah. listening to our podcast. But yeah. I mean, I imagine that this could carry a lot of weight for individuals that aren't familiar to post-secondary education or are interested in it. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of tell us or tell our audience what a post-secondary class looks like. Because there's a mo- there's a bunch of forms that a, a class can take mm-hmm. uh, through seminars, lectures, tutorials, mm-hmm. things like that. Can you give us kind of an idea or or our audience an idea of what 
a class actually looks like. You talk a lot about PowerPoints. Yeah. Uh, that's revolutionized yeah. <laughs> <laughs> teaching methods. No for, more blackboards. Yeah. Uh, no blackboards. No no overhead transparencies. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah you're not doing the projector writeouts anymore. Yeah, that's right. uh, so, I mean, what does it look like today? What are your lectures looking like? And what are the different types of uh, formats that they can kind of take? So I think what a university or what a post-secondary classroom looks like really differs depending on what kind of department or what area you're going into. So for instance, um, a lot of my undergrad was spent in, uh, in Asian studies courses and Korean courses uh, because that was part of another major that I did in undergrad. And you know, language courses, Asian studies courses are generally much smaller than in psychology courses. And so in, so in language courses, it's part of the requirement is that you have to talk to each other and then you have to engage in conversations to practice the language, right? And that was the same thing. I took a Latin course for a weird reason in first year as well. <laughs> so, I mean, we did that and we did, we did a lot of conversations in Latin and in Korean class as well. Mm -hmm. Asian studies courses, I remember the ones that I took, there was a lot of, sure, there, sure, there was a lot of the, 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 the faculty member teaching us information, but there were also a lot of uh, opportunities for us to discuss ideas with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's sometimes a little more difficult to facilitate that in a large lecture setting. So for, for psychology courses, especially in the first sort of 100, 200, and 300 level courses, those, the majority of those courses are really, really big. Uh, I think the smallest that I've ever taught was maybe 94. Okay. Uh, and the largest that I've ever taught was maybe 220. Um, and there are others who've taught larger courses. So if you're teaching um, a 101, 102, so introductory psych courses, mm -hmm. you are upwards of like 300 students in, at, one... in one big lecture hall. Wow. Yeah, and you're essentially yelling into the abyss. Right? <laughs> That's basically what that cavernous classroom looks like. Yeah. Um, and then you, you, just, you just hope to get to everyone. Uh, but it's, it's, it's difficult uh, when you have large classrooms because it's going to feel less personal. Yeah. Um, and, and you want to try to remember everyone's names, mm -hmm. but I can't remember so this term, I'm teaching 450 students or thereabouts. I'm not going to be able to remember all 450 students' names. I'm going to do my best to remember as many as I can, but there's limits to my, to my memory. And as I get older, that <laughs> limit will go down even lower and lower. Um, so there, there's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of sort of removal of... Um, it certainly feels very impersonal. In a lecture in a, in a lecture theater right. in, in post secondary education, but I think what it also is great for is allowing students to talk about more ideas and to be exposed to more ideas, and um, to see what other people are thinking and hear how other people are reasoning their way through certain ideas, and that might also influence you or to teach you how to uh, think through your ideas as well um, and maybe on some occasions you might go oh that's a really great idea never thought of that before and then you sort of just add it to your own learning so I think there's a lot of room for collaborative learning in in university classrooms as big as they are part of in, in some ways you can sort of harness that kind of um, that kind of 
the, the size of the room to increase, to enhance people's learning. Right. But it's a difficult thing to do when you have 300 people in the same classroom. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's very daunting for people to want to talk in front of 300 people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, you kind of bled into the second question that I was going to ask you, but yeah. the question is essentially what makes a good lecture or what makes a good class? Yeah. If you had to do a lecture, what would be the best way of going about a lecture about social psychology? It would be a combination of getting people to generate examples of how the psych social psych ideas that we've talked about in class relates to their everyday life. And also to get them to work their way through a real-life example. Um, so uh, one of my favorite lectures in social psych is in the last unit of my course, which is on the intersection between law and psycho and social psychology. And in there, I talk a lot about things like um, eyewitness testimony and uh, groupthink and how groupthink contributes sometimes to poor police work. And so groupthink is this idea that when you get a group of uh, very cohe a very cohesive group of people together and they are very insulated from external output and you have maybe a very strong opinionated leader who makes their opinions known to the rest of the group uh, very early on, that, that ends up directing the direction of thought of the rest of the group. And so they end up ignoring alternative ideas, they end up ignoring pertinent information, and they sort of get this tunnel vision uh, to hone in on finding corresponding evidence for what it is that they want to find in the first place, right? Confirmation bias. Almost. Confirmation bias, yeah. exactly, yeah. So uh, what I really like to get them to do is uh, to, is, is to go through this example of the Vancouver Police Department's, and I'm not criticizing the VPD <laughs> at all. They do they do fantastic work, um, um, but I mean the VPD and the RCMP had come under a lot of scrutiny and criticism for how they handle the Robert Picton trial. Uh, and Robert Picton, for anyone who's unfamiliar, uh, is a serial killer that operated out of downtown Eastside who preyed on primarily um, uh, sex workers in downtown Eastside, many of whom were indigenous women as well. And uh, there's been a lot of criticism over the way in which the investigation itself was handled and conducted. Uh, and um, there's been suggestion that groupthink played a role in it. And I've lo I looked through the commission that uh, Wally Opal had established to investigate the um, the, uh, the 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 I think the the report itself was called Forsaken, okay. uh, which was a commission, which is a result of a commission looking into the Picton trial, the, the Picton investigation itself, um, and also looking into a book that one of the investigators ended up writing, um, and there's a lot of evidence of groupthink, and so what I did was I would pull different quotes and different pieces of evidence from the, the Forsaken report uh, on the, the murdered women and also the, uh, uh, the book that was written by the investigator. Uh, and I wanted the students to 
walk through those pieces of information, trying to see whether, trying to see what, in what way does this represent? Does it seem to have exhibited signs of groupthink? Mm -hmm. And so they get into groups and they talk about this, these things that these police members did here is a classic sign of groupthink, of this particular component of groupthink, and go through all of that and then sort of realize how applicable psychology is to everyone, right? From uh, understanding, so another thing that I get them to do is to uh, tweet about the things that they learn about in class um, to see how it applies to their everyday life. Uh, and so, a, a, to me, a good successful class is when students get into these group activities and they're able to identify the many ways in which psychology uh, meshes with their everyday lives. Because just like with a lot of other fields, psychology doesn't just live on textbooks, right? It doesn't just live in the slides that we give to students, but it it's it's everything that we teach is a representation of what happens in our everyday lives. Um, so that to me is a good is is a good class. Like when yeah. people when people get that, and I ask them for their results, uh, or for for the outcome of their discussions, that and 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 they they're able to hit those points, then I I feel like they they've learned something. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I wish I was in that class. I, I'd love to <laughs> yeah, be a part of that class and that discussion because uh, it's very interesting. I think as like as individuals that are in psychology, we have the luxury of having really interesting content to talk about mm -hmm. uh, and drawing that out and making it applicable in everyday life or the way that you think about things, mm -hmm. being able to to allow your students to think about how it applies in their lives is probably a huge component of what makes a really good lecture or makes it, makes it more interesting and more likely that they'll remember it going mm -hmm. forward, right? Because they've applied it to their life. They've, they've realized that this is their subjective view that they're backed up by the theories mm -hmm. that they've learned but never really touched on yeah. or never really took the time to think about how right. it actually applies. And I think, I mean, that sounds like an interesting course to me. And, yeah. But but it also, at the same time, sounds exhausting, setting that kind of thing up. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> it, the work that you put into to do that one lecture seems like you were very interested in it, but you had to do a lot of work to draw that out. It takes a lot of background research to make sure that you have the right pieces of information to, especially when it comes to um, sensitive topics like that. Yeah. You want to make sure that you, you're trying to communicate things in ways that are as appropriate as possible. Yeah. Um, and it's always a, it's always a learning process. And so yeah. if, uh, in one case, if I do make a mistake, then I learn and I try to make it make it better the the next the next year or the right. next iteration. But it, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of prep work that goes into activities like those. Yeah, yeah. the the really engaging classes don't just pop out of thin air. No, no, <laughs> I a lot wish of they did. I wish they did. <laughs> yeah. Um, the last question I have before we get into another, I think we're gonna do it the yeah we'll get we'll do the segment afterwards. But I, and this is a loaded question. What do you think of <laughs> What do you think of examinations at the university level? Oh man, uh, how, how are, do you measure learning? So we actually, uh, we, I actually had this conversation with with another grad student yesterday. Um, it's it's a bit of a it's a bit of a necessary evil, and really for me the the one thing that I hate the most about teaching 
is creating assessments, is creating exams. Mm. Because so with during the whole term, there are four days during which I am the most anxious. It is day one when I learn when I meet new people. It is midterm one, I am super anxious. Midterm two, I'm super anxious. Final exam, I'm super anxious. So on all of those days, I'm just my my heart is just pounding out of my chest. And and it's just there I mean like I said, we we find them to be a necessary evil because I guess if you look at post-secondary institution as a way to distinguish between people who are high performers versus people who are low performers, then that would be a necessary evil. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we're in a system where we have to use the university education system or the post-secondary education system to do that. Mm-hmm. It would be great if that wasn't necessary. It'd yeah. be great if all that this institution was about was just to have people learn and just to have people gain knowledge and mm-hmm. content. Um, but at the end of the day, in the system as it stands now, we do have to you know, slot people into who's going to go to med school, who's going to go to grad school, who's mm-hmm. going to go to, into all these other different programs. And and so we, we kind of have to have these kind of exams. Mm-hmm. We kind of have to have assignments. But I I, I hate them. Yeah. I really don't like exams. <laughs> I, and I really hate creating exams. Right. Nobody likes being graded. Nobody likes being judged. Mm-hmm. But I think the point that you're also making is it's no fun putting making those assessments either no it's it's not exactly an experience that you know any of us relish it's not yeah yeah so how i how i sometimes think about it is let's say a a student in in a vacuum a student does poorly on an exam right Uh, and they might get upset or if they really care about what their family thinks then maybe a few other people might get upset if i mess up writing an exam then I have this term, 450 people who are upset at me, um, plus me upset at myself as yeah. well. The harshest of critics. The harshest of critics, exactly. Um, and it's it's difficult because when you're writing exams, especially you're writing an exam for the first time or creating an exam for the first time, you have to figure out, like you don't know how many questions is an appropriate number, length of the exam. You don't know how difficult your exam is. You don't know how difficult your questions are. You don't know how clear your questions are. And one thing that I've learned very quickly is that you can intend for a question to ask one thing and to mean it in a particular way. Give it to 10 people and you'll probably get five different interpretations (laughs) of the same question. And then you sort of have to go back and go, okay, yeah, maybe I guess that was vague. Um, Or maybe that wasn't vague. I don't know where they got that interpretation from. But what like, in your material led them to that yeah, conclusion? Right? Yeah, and and so it for me when I create exam questions, it's always this 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 tug of war between okay, I want to create a, a an exam that is fairly challenging, but it's fair, um, and and it's going to accurately represent people's knowledge as much as possible in a fifty minute time frame. Yeah, um, and so. Often I have to, so that people don't think that the question is too vague and so they can answer it in 20 different ways, 
I have to give them as much detail as is needed, right, for them to get exactly what it is that I'm asking them to do. But then sometimes if I do that, then it becomes too text heavy. And, you know, when students are writing exams in a high pressure, anxiety inducing environment, it gets confusing, right? Because there's a lot of, they're, they're cognitively loaded. They're not able to parse the, the words and sentences as effectively and as efficiently. And so there's always, like, if, if you were to look at the exam outside of the exam context as a student, the questions would read fine. But I think in an exam context, yeah. and I can completely appreciate this, it sometimes if it's there's a lot of text and it just it feels daunting and it feels confusing. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's like the, there's no one has an easy way of writing of saying this. I I know how to write the best exams, yeah. right? Um, Somebody says that they're lying. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, you can you can do the best that you can to write exams that are as representative of what you want the students to know. But there's always going to be problems with an exam. You can retool it as much as you can, as much as you want, but there's always going to be problems with exams, I find. Um, or maybe that's just because I don't know how to write exams yet. I don't know. <laughs> um, but like, it's, it's really just, am I, I don't want to be vague, yeah. but I can't be too detailed. Yeah. And that's always a line that I'm trying to straddle. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's two people who have marked your exams. I, I'd say I'm fairly confident yeah. that they're they're good yeah. they're good to <laughs> thanks go. thanks um, yeah it, it's it can definitely be a challenge and, and maybe with that we should move on and kind of talk about um receiving student feedback uh because i think maybe as an undergraduate you really don't realize uh how much your feedback is important uh how much it's valued and especially how much we do actually take a look at these things and, and um, make adjustments where mm-hmm. needed and appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if you wouldn't mind, uh, tell us a little bit about what UBC does in terms of re- getting feedback from students mm-hmm. um, and then sort of what you do with that information afterwards. So, uh, of course, at the end of every course... UBC students are asked or invited to give evaluations, uh, teaching evaluations to their teaching assistants if they have any, uh, and also to their faculty members, to to their instructors, to their professors. Um, And it's usually rated in terms of things like how how clear were they and how respectful were they, uh, did they treat everyone equally with with respect and you know, overall general effectiveness of this instructor, uh, and then written comments, uh, and 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 that's the psychology department used to have our own questions, but then that made the evaluation very long, and so now we've done away with them, and we just go with the university items. And even sorry, even on that response rates are what like less than 50% typically? So I think before when we still had the long form, so when we had the when we had the psych items in it, the response rates tended to be pretty low. Um, probably 30%, yeah. I want to say, mm-hmm. which uh, I think um, the person I mentioned before, Dr. Catherine Ron, has better numbers on this in terms of like across 
campus, the different response rates in different departments. But in, 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 in having removed the items, I think response rates have gone up. And I really do try to encourage more students, as yeah. many as possible, to fill out the teaching evaluations. And I think the highest that I've ever gotten, uh, the highest response rate that I've ever gotten was maybe close to a 70. I think it was 69. Wow. Um, my lowest was maybe a 49, which was recent, I mm. think. But it's important. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I do try to get as many people as possible to do the teaching evaluations because we can't rely on things like rate my prof. Um, I was about to ask about your opinion on rate my prof. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you can't rely on things like rate my prof because people who fill those out are usually ones who really love you or really hate you. Yeah. Uh, and there's almost no moderating force in between. And so, and especially since there's really small sample sizes on there as well. Yeah. I, I I just I stay away from that. I don't check that at all, uh, actually. And Good for you. Uh, thank you. I, it, I I made a pact with another instructor to never check Ray my prof just because <laughs> of the the roller coaster that can be the comment section of yeah. of Ray my prof. Um, but I, I I try to encourage as many people as I can to fill out teaching evaluations because the larger numbers, the more representative. Um, of the of the class we can right. get. Yeah, absolutely. I think the teaching evals, I think the point you make is great, that the teaching evaluations, we try and hammer it into their skulls that we really want the feedback <laughs> yeah. of the students. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's not subtle that, like, oh, just fill out the, the yeah, evals. Yeah, we, yeah. we remind them frequently and often for a couple of weeks that and we really e do benefit from yeah, that. Yeah, they're even given, uh, or they should be given in yeah. class time as well, yeah. which yeah. I yeah. know you do. Um, but the, the, the point that I was interested in, and it's a really good point, is the, that with Rate My Prof, it's not something that's asked of them. It's something that someone has to have done the in their own volition to, yeah. to go out and give you Impetus. some sort of uh, rate. I, and I see this. This is exactly what I see whenever I go onto Yelp or oh, uh, yeah. other review sites yeah. where you're yeah. reviewing something. You're not getting this, oh, yeah, it was actually okay, but yeah. I, I'll give it a three out of five. Yeah. That doesn't happen. It's, it's the fives and the ones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're not, you don't feel like you need to go and review someone if it was okay. Yeah. If you have nothing to complain about, but nothing was amazing. Yeah. And it's the exact same thing with Write My Prof. Yeah. And I think that's a really good point because yeah. some people will really, I mean, students do consider rate my prof when they go and see yeah, for sure. uh, whether or not they should take a course or something with yeah. their prof, yeah. which is too bad. I know. No. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I, I have to say, um, uh, when we receive the email that the evaluations have been released, um, my heart kind of sinks a little <laughs> because oh, I am absolutely terrified of teaching evals, I I read them. I read everything that comes through um, because I think they're important for how I improve my teaching and how I how I can effectively teach future students. But I'm still terrified of them because you can get all the positive ones, um, and I've had students in the past who said really really amazing nice things to me in my teaching evals. But it just takes a couple yeah. of maybe even it just just takes that one negative one that's the one that'll stick with you and that's the one that'll eat at you for a long time mm -hmm. and 
and and and it's tough because you know I read them because I care about what I do, and I take pride in what I do, and I want to do well. At, I want to be good at what I do. Uh, and and so after all the effort that you put in, after all the time that you put in, and after all the things that you do to try to make it a good course for students, it's heartbreaking sometimes to uh, to read a negative comment. Um, and I mean, I know that statistically, it's impossible that I get no negative comments. That's <laughs> that's Im- that's impossible. Yeah. Um, but I I I. I know they're coming, but I'm still terrified of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I do read through all of them because there will be things in there that I can change. So, for instance, how I orient my slides or how I talk or some of the activities that I do. So over time, I will make changes, um, especially if I see a consistent message from students saying that, this is not as helpful or mm-hmm. that is that is that is something that's good please keep it please keep doing it this way when i get conflicting messages then that's when i just stick with the status quo yeah. um but you know like mm-hmm. i said if i if i get consistent messages from students uh and it's something that doesn't go against my teaching philosophy then uh, i i would be happy to change it because i'm not here to screw over students right i'm here to try to do what i can to make it as effective of a learning environment for students as possible so if there's something that i could do i'd be happy to do it yeah Yeah. it it sounds uh when you when you bring that up it kind of reminds me of just like any form of feedback when you're doing something like a podcast so you start a podcast (laughs) the feedback that you receive i mean it could be glowing yeah and then you have one or two comments where it really does make you question whether or not you're you're doing the right thing and it's yeah. like or doing it the correct way yeah and and that that definitely translates to teaching because you do put a lot of time into that and uh i mean we put a little bit of time yeah. into this too. so <laughs> again so like well. i said if there's any negative feedback email kyle Gooderum. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and leave it off the brain Buzz podcast email yeah. so i don't have to see it uh, but i mean it's a, it's a really good point that uh you really as a teacher or as a as someone that really wants to promote learning or or i mean that's what we're doing here as well we want to promote learning you want to have that uh it's inevitable that you will have that negative feedback but it it definitely does impact who the receiving it whoever's receiving it and it can be used positively Mm -hmm. when it's framed in that positive light right absolutely so yeah i mean critical feedback is not the same thing as like just being mean malicious yeah. Feedback. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah i mean i've had students who maybe disagree with things that i did in class or maybe what wasn't a huge fan of things something that i did in class but they weren't mean about it they would mm. just tell me and those things i just sort of take it in stride and then it's the people who are almost excuse me almost giving me like personal attacks like those ones are the ones that eat at me because i just when it goes so far against the majority opinion it makes me go what could i possibly have done mm-hmm. to have uh to have made this person feel this way right um or to have reacted in such a strong way mm-hmm. 
yeah. I, when I when I hear that, I kind of think of the third variable problem <laughs> in, <laughs> in psychology, which is there's a third variable that's impacting the result. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in this case, it might unaccounted for and unaccounted for, not unexpected. measured, right? And so the way that I see it, knowing your teaching style and knowing that it's, it is very rare to kind of get that op, like the absolute polar opposite of what you're getting. Um, it might be something else going on that's unique to that individual that they really need to kind of un- unload but it doesn't help it anyway <laughs> no <laughs> that, that you're reading it and you don't know what it that oh, is so it's never there's never going to be an answer yeah, to it right i mean i guess an- another way to think about it could be that maybe this person knows something that everyone else doesn't know about or right. maybe, maybe that i don't know about and then that could be a learning opportunity for me that i haven't considered yet um but I'll never have that opportunity to learn because I never get to respond to these. I never get to follow up. I never get to understand better why someone might say you're an awful human being, for instance. (laughs) So like, you know, (laughs) what do you need to do with that? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's difficult when you, when you sort of pour your heart into doing something and then you get that kind of feedback. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's, one of the pros and cons of of being anonymous with yeah. with uh, reviews, right? It's great that you can be anonymous and you don't have to feel like it's there's a target on your back when you yeah. give feedback if it's critical or if it's negative. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it sucks not being able to respond to that student to see what you can do better. Yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. And very rarely will they reach out. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they For won't. Sure. They, they won't tell it to your hey, face. Ben, I, yeah. uh, I really, really thought you were just terrible last semester. <laughs> I left you some nasty comments. Yeah, emails, but here's a follow up email. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there. I have had a student where they really disagree with something that I did in class, but they were so nice about it, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot from the exchange that I had with that student, yeah. and that impacted me so much. I. I ended up changing how I approach that topic in class, um, and that was that was really good feedback for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a really touchy subject as well. I right. won't I won't talk about what it is, but it was a really touchy subject. And the student was courageous enough to bring it up to me, uh, and I, I thought it was I thought it was a great way for me to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, but I that's not. Yeah, that's yeah. not how I. That's not the usual experience I get when <laughs> yeah, people have yeah, negative absolutely. feedback. Yeah, they usually go to rate my prof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> hey everyone, uh, we hope that you've been enjoying the episode to this point. We're gonna dip into our brain break and take a little uh, moment. When we get back, we'll be listening uh, or speaking with Ben about some popular misconceptions in in uh, the field of education, including uh, learning styles and all sorts of other fun stuff. So uh, enjoy the break, and we'll see you on the other side. What I did, they said, go to school and be a college kid. But in the end, I question why I did. I'm poor, I'm starving, I'm flat broke, I've got no cash to spend. Sell all my books for front row tickets to Dave Matthews Pan. My girlfriend's at another school, I know this year will test her. I called found out she had three other boyfriends last semester. That's why I say, oh no. 
Ben has a really good topic that he wanted to bring to people's attention about learning styles. Um, do you want to tell us what your issue is right now? <laughs> so learning styles is this idea that people will certainly self-report are very willing to self-report that they have a particular learning style, that they're a visual learner or they're a kinesthetic learner or whatever kind of learner they are. And there is like 40 different models of learning styles, each with a completely different topology and with completely different terms. One is like a, a social learner, one is like a reflective learner, and one's a visual learner. And these are terms from completely different models as well. <laughs> uh, and it's and, and it's the idea that people have these learning styles, meaning they learn best when they are presented with information that corresponds to that particular learning style. Um, and in some, in, in sometimes people call it the, the meshing hypothesis, that a teacher's teaching style when meshes when it meshes with the learning style of the student creates optimal learning outcomes so a student will do the best when they are a visual learner and the teacher is uh, has a visual teaching style mm -hmm. so um amongst uh psychologists um it's sort of one of those things we call a zombie theory <laughs> it's it's a it's a theory it's it, it, what it is, is it's an idea that at some point had been proposed and it's still something that catches a lot of attention. A lot of school age kids, even high school students will do inventories to test what kind of learning style they have as though it has any significance or consequence. Even though there's been no good empirical evidence and, I'm, and there's been several large scale reviews and meta-analyses of these kinds of learning styles and the meshing hypothesis. And they don't demonstrate much validity in that concept at all. So it, it's, it's existed for a while, but it just won't die. That's why we call it a zombie theory. <laughs> and and, and um, even, I think, as recent as some sometime in the 2000s in the early 2000s there was this association of principals in 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 the u.s it's like association of high school principals or something like that and they were really advocating for identifying uh, learning styles amongst its students uh, and and that was surprising to me and one of there's there's a researcher in uh, in the states uh, who is a very talented researcher and a very fantastic uh, educator as well. Her name is um, Dr. Beth Morling. Uh, and I connected with her on several occasions. We, we co-facilitated a workshop together one time. Uh, and, and she talked about how she was so frustrated that when that one time when when her son came home from school and uh, she and, and the, the son told her, that uh, oh the teacher at school had given them a, a learning style inventory and he had some whatever whatever learning style it was and then she actually had to sit down with him and just explain to him this is what it means this is what it doesn't mean and all of that yeah um, and a, a lot of this hinges on sort of memory biases that people have 
that you remember. It's sort of almost like correspondence bias. Where you remember the times when learning from a visual、uh, source, if you're a visual learner, let's say, when you learn from a visual source, you remembered it really well.、Mm-hmm. But you may not remember the times when you learn from a visual source and you didn't remember it well. And so it just contributes to this false narrative that you are a visual learner.、Mm-hmm. And so if Someone presents you with something that isn't visual. You just sort of tune it out because you have this. You identify with being a visual learner. Yeah,、uh, and they've already tried to test this meshing hypothesis with both the liberal、um, uh, liberal interpretation and a conservative interpretation. I don't mean political. So, <laughs> conservative、uh, interpretation would be. Visual learners learn best from visual teachers. Kinesthetic learners learn best from kinesthetic teachers. Right,、yeah. that exact match.、Yeah. The liberal interpretation is there is some match across any modality of learning that will elicit、uh, optimal learning.、Mm-hmm. So maybe visual learners learn best from kinesthetic teachers or something like that. Right, right. They haven't found good evidence for any of them.、Um, <laughs> So whether it's the liberal interpretation or the conservative interpretation, but like I said, it's it's a it's a zombie theory. It just it's stuck around. It was popularized in the '60s, and it continues to be popularized. And it's just something that just doesn't doesn't go away.、Mm-hmm. Um, and that's actually one of the research we can talk about another time. Yeah,、uh, where I, I investigate people's.、Uh, Perceptions and beliefs in the learning styles that they might have,、uh, and whether or not they make educational decisions based on their perceived learning styles. Right. That sounds great. Yeah. So, what is going to be required to put the final nail in that <laughs> zombie theory coffin? Or what、yeah. is the answer? What, what is, is the silver the... bullet? Yeah. What is the <laughs> silver bullet? Ah,、uh, I wish I knew. Because I think、um, it has driven educational psychologists nuts long enough that we all—I shouldn't say we—I don't—I <laughs> I don't think educational psychologists would count me in as one of them.、Um, Maybe for the better, they still haven't figured it out. Yeah, <laughs>、uh, but I think I think every, people who are involved in this area of research has been so frustrated that this still exists, but we're sort of. Exasperated as to what to do outside of just public education and just trying to get to people. It's sort of like when the MBTI, right? The the Myers Briggs. Yeah.、Um, Want to explain Myers Briggs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this idea. So for anyone who's unfamiliar with the Myers Briggs,、uh, familiar with what their acronym is. Yeah, like the ENF, EN, ENFJ,、yeah. or whatever it is. Yeah, ENTJ. Yeah. So it's this. <laughs> It's this personality inventory that supposedly divides people into, I guess, sixteen, yeah, four by four. So sixteen different grids of what your personality、uh, compilation constellation is, and everyone is a con- is a different constellation. One of those sixteen constellations, whether you're extroverted or introverted, you're reflective or whatever it is. I don't, I don't really know what、yeah. the what the four. Someone, someone、people. at a party has asked me what my Myers Briggs was, and I just, of course, <laughs> just walk away. Like, yeah, so you could be like, <laughs> like depending on what it is, you could be like a thinker or an adventurer or、yeah. whatever or whatever it is, and like that, that doesn't really seem to predict anything. So it's sort of like with the with the Myers Briggs or and with the、um, with the with learning styles, 
they've established good reliability in terms of when you actually you know like test retest reliability right. if you take a test at time one and you take the same test and time two do you get similar or the same answers well you yeah you you get the same answers to the extent that you're answering the same questions but then they don't predict anything really of consequence and it's almost sort of like horoscopes yeah. right you yeah. you just you, you you pay attention to when the horoscopes match <laughs> up with what you uh with with what you're doing or what you're thinking typical scorpio move right? yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're definitely a taurus <laughs> yeah yeah exactly exactly um well, that everybody's like oh they're an asshole there's one that they're just like oh which one is that guy's an asshole he must be a blank I, I don't know. Is, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> apparently, cancer. Which I, I am. I, I am a cancer, and apparently, I'm supposed to be super stubborn. Um, <laughs> so true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true. <laughs> that's, I think that's a really good comparison, though. The horoscopes with uh, the Myers Briggs, because it really is. Is it yeah. really externally valid, or is it actually like telling you what? Yeah. Occurs in real life. Uh, I'm sure you can generate examples to show anything so now when i when i read horoscopes uh on like 24 or something i'll look at the cancer one and i'll go oh yeah that kind of sounds like me and then i'll go look at the leo one and i'll just go yeah that also kind of sounds like me <laughs> <laughs> just go through <laughs> yeah just, what's the best one for today yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> today i'll be a virgo <laughs> <laughs> yeah no so i mean i mean by the segments really trying to kind of debunk some some beliefs or yeah. some misguided beliefs and i think yeah i think you've done that <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's, it's a really good point that i mean i think even in high school i did i did uh oh i know 100 percent. i think almost everyone would have yeah. done it in yeah. in, in, in i North think it America. was a part of the curriculum yeah in grade 11 yeah, like or 12 caps course or something, something yeah like that. yeah yeah so i hope I hope they're not doing that still, but <laughs> oh, I bet so they are. They probably. Yeah, they I bet are they are. That. There's a lot of other issues <laughs> that are not really associated with the the learning inventories. But yeah. well, it goes. I mean, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but it goes back to sort of um, the amount of time it takes for psychology education and educational psychology to actually make its way into the hands of the people doing the work. Mm -hmm. And you've got a teacher who graduated. And it's, has been teaching for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Good luck, you know. <laughs> Good mm -hmm. luck telling them about this new study that came out last month that has all these answers that might be a really huge benefit to them. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. And again, it's, it just kind of leads to the importance of communicating science. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And yeah. why, one of the reasons why we're doing this is to get those things out there and to give these uh, fantastic people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And these, like, kind of, yeah, again, put to bed these zombie theories that really have are annoying all the people in in academia or in specific areas of academia yeah. but really they're just talking with each other yeah saying this is really stupid <laughs> yeah i can't believe people still think this they're yeah. all in agreement and they've they've done these studies they've run yeah. the studies they've found the results where it's like this is abundantly clear this is not what's going on yeah i mean <laughs> I, I see twitter threads all the time between uh other academics talking about oh my god they're talking about learning styles again or oh my god they're talking about the the myers-briggs again but then i'm just like yes you're all preaching to the same choir yeah. it's it's all people from the same choir yeah yeah yeah, yeah with the same note music like, yeah exactly <laughs> exactly what you thought would happen everyone's a soprano and they're just all singing the same <laughs> note to each other yeah but yeah i mean oh, that also it's on us as researchers and and to be as academics to 
make sure that people that aren't in that specific niche yeah. are aware of this. Yeah. Uh, these issues. So if you're listening to this. Get your mom, your dad, your sister, your brother, yeah. your dog, your teacher, <laughs> anybody. Have them listen up. Spend some spit and truth to all this podcast, to this show. Subscribe, <laughs> like, subscribe on Google Play, iTunes. Anyways, um, Ben, with with everything that you said today, you have, and I see this on Twitter fairly often. You've done something really cool with your students, or you do something really cool with your students. You give them an opportunity to meet with you. Mm. One, for a little bit more sort of personal one-on-one time. Can you tell us what that is, why you do it, and just yeah. so, how it all came to be, I guess? Yeah, so uh, I actually uh, originally picked up this idea. So this is called Bagels with Ben. Um, and thank you. And uh, I, I, was, I was very happy at the beginning of the year when I asked students in my class how many of you uh, have heard of Bagels with Ben who have never been my students and people started holding uh, people started raising their hands so it's making the way around you know that's on rate my profit <laughs> for sure like it must be maybe I don't know <laughs> uh, it's, it's actually an idea that I got when I took uh, psychology psycho- uh, yeah psychology of teaching from uh, Dr. Ron uh, as a grad student and and she talked about this other person also called Ben this other faculty member somewhere else who also does something similar and uh Really, the whole point is, or the, the whole the whole impetus for this was the understanding that I went through undergrad at UBC as well. And UBC is great in that it's so big and you can do everything that you want. There's, there's a bid for everyone. But also the challenge with UBC is that it's so big, right? And it's so easy to get lost in the crowd to not build rapport with, your, with, with faculty members, to not make friends. It's just too easy. And I wanted to make it as easy as possible for students to establish con- connections with each other, to establish connections with me. Um, and it's all meant towards building a sense of community among students in whatever course it is that I'm teaching. Uh, and so what bagels with Ben is, and I tried experimenting with other kinds of food instead, like baguettes with Ben, but they're a lot more unwieldy than bagels are. Um, uh, and I thought bananas with Ben's not really satisfying and brunch with Ben seems too general. So I went with bagels with Ben. I like it. Uh, and so what it is, is once a week where I, I go to a designated meeting place, I bring bagels, I bring spread and students bring themselves and whatever it is else, whatever else it is that they want to bring. Um, people in the past have brought their own fruit trays. Uh, others have brought donuts. Others have brought all sorts of different things, which which has been really great. Uh, and we just we just sit around and we just chat, and it's been it's been it's been really fun. Um, uh, I invite, I especially invite particular groups of students to each week mm-hmm. because I've learned the hard way that if you don't assign students, then no one shows up. Yeah. Um, but I think over time after I've, after having built up this, this, this broad knowledge, I guess, of what Bagels with Ben is, people gen- generally end up showing up even if they're not invited to that session. Um, and, and, you know, we, we've talked about, Everything ranging from uh, Iranian politics to Korean religious history to something as silly as what's your favorite Japanese restaurant or 
or what kind of hobbies do you like to do or what position do you hate playing the most in hockey like that like <laughs> just anything under the sun Goal. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i agree um and so it's it's just a fun way for me to get to know other students yeah. um and it's an easy way for students to get to know each other so that it's not so that the class isn't completely anonymous mm. and it's just I, I like establishing that kind of connection yeah. and I like that kind of rapport building with students. Um, and, you know, I try to post it up picture once a week on, mm -hmm. on Twitter just to show, Hey, you can have fun as well. If you just, you know, come to, come to bagels with Ben. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's probably one of my favorite parts of the week. Yeah. The depersonalization of those big, yeah. uh, big like lecture halls can really, you can you can lose a lot of students through the cracks that yeah. way, right? And I think yeah. having something in place like that is a phenomenal outlet for those students that might not feel like there's any time or any, anybody has any time for them. Yeah. So it's great. I mean, I know a lot of undergrads do struggle and grad students too. Yeah. Uh, struggle to kind of feel like there's a place for them. So it's it's great yeah. to have that outlet. And what I really want to do um, as a big picture thing outside of just building community is so that they have a i guess a, a constant a consistent person that they can go to mm -hmm. if they need some sort of help or they need some sort of referral or something like that um every now and then i still check in with students that i've had in previous years just to make sure that they're doing okay because they're mm -hmm. still studying here and especially if they've had mental health issues and i just want to make sure that they're doing fine yeah. um and you know it's it's all just part of that community building mm -hmm. um and, and bagels with ben is sort of um the 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 centerpiece yeah, of, of yeah. my effort to to create this sense of community for students yeah that's awesome fantastic well ben thank you so much for coming on our show thanks for having um, me no it's it's absolutely been our pleasure thank you for being uh with us and beside us on social media as well it's been a treat to have your support yeah, so. currently number one fan oh yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah i, I mean my mom told me she listened. <laughs> but Ben's up there. <laughs> oh, man. Um, so with that, I give you a, shout, a chance to give yourself a shout-out. Anything going on that you want other people to be aware of? Anybody listening to the show that isn't you that they should know? How yeah. do they get in touch with you? That kind of stuff. Yeah, so uh, uh, I would, of course, first want to give a shout-out to the Psych Students Association, the PSA. Uh, the PSA is an undergraduate student-run uh, student association uh, within the Department of Psychology, and we represent both uh, science and art students uh, under, the, uh, under the psychology department. Uh, and we host events every month to also try to build a sense of community amongst uh, around everyone. We have these monthly faculty student socials where grad students, faculty members, and undergrads all mingle together in, uh, in the psych department. There's free food, there's music. We tried to do karaoke yes, uh, the last time, but we were missing mics um, or <laughs> oh. functional mics. So uh, we're gonna give it a, give another go uh, in, in the future. But like, you know, join the PSA. We got great events, and I say we because I'm the faculty supervisor for the PSA. <laughs> uh, no conflict of interest there. Uh, but we have great events, both academic events as well as social events. We have a mental health workshop coming up uh, relatively recently, uh, re re relatively soon. 
Um, and we also have different kinds of socials. There's going to be a, a speed caking, which is basically people just throw in and eat cake and chat and hang out. Um, <laughs> so amazing. like we have we have all these amazing events uh, coming up, and the ex- executives are amazingly friendly people and very helpful, and just want to make psychology uh, a big one big cohesive community. So uh, I would like to give a big shout out uh, to them. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I also want to give a shout out to uh, my wife uh, as well, who in all my years of being a highly neurotic and anxious um, instructor, she definitely does more than anyone else to just calm me down when I have those negative comments that I get from uh, teaching evaluations, she's really the person that grounds me a lot. Yeah. That's great. Uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with me, uh, they can find me on Twitter. Uh, I am UBC Dr. Bench. That is UBC DR Bench, as in the benches that you sit on. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'd be happy to follow people back awesome yeah and very active on twitter yeah, uh, absolutely and he's a he's a great person to follow he's got a lot lot to say a lot Thank of really you. fun yeah. stuff really quick we we chose a ted mosby gift <laughs> for you and we got some we got one of somebody i, I don't actually know who she is lena student of yeah, yours yeah. lena yeah. yeah so um yeah, apparently that was an appropriate one to choose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Lena has been in a couple of my courses, including this current one. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in my research methods, and uh, she's currently in my cultural psych. So she she knows my teaching style pretty well. <laughs> she will she... concur that I, like Ted Mosby, uh, am uh, dorky and make terrible cold jokes in class. <laughs> yeah. Lovable. Thank you. Lovable. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Classic Mosby. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, we'll end it there. Thank you for listening to Brain Buzz. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and Google Play. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at uh, Brain Buzz Pod. You can find us at our website as well, brainbuzzpodcast.com. Uh, if you feel like leaving us a comment, do so on any any of those uh, different media options. I guess we're, we're also on, on Facebook too. Facebook, Instagram. <laughs> I keep yeah. forgetting Reddit. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah give us a give us a like share and make sure to subscribe to our, our podcast so you get to see uh, each new episode as it comes out yeah we'll be updating it regularly yeah anyways thank you all for listening cheers cheers